Welcome to The Yoga Voice, a podcast by City Yoga, School of Yoga and Health. Our guests discuss how the contemporary practice of this ancient art transforms the lives of individuals and communities in the Midwest and beyond. City Yoga has been a center for the practice of yoga and yoga teacher training since opening in 2002. Join us as we explore how yoga inspires and transforms. Welcome back to The Yoga Voice. Dave Sims here, your host today. And I say welcome back because we missed you all. We took a little pause this summer just to go out and experience a little slower paced life in the in the chaos of life as it is today. So hope you all have had a wonderful summer. We're excited to be, be back. We've got some exciting uh, shows coming up for you. And today in particular, we had this first of a two-part series with an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher. He's a lifelong musician, trained professionally. He's a founder of Ashaya Yoga. He's also the author of an upcoming book, Tantra Yoga, Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness, which will be coming out this fall, October, November-ish. So look for that. And actually, our conversation explored Todd's yoga journey and his life experience. And then we started digging into the book that uh, he has recently written. And, and it's just, he has so much to share. He's been a teacher since the early 80s. So just these decades of teaching and life experience and living in an ashram and being a part of spiritual communities and going through transitions and taking the threads of yoga throughout his life journey and, and truly living living yoga and embracing and just embodying many of the uh, ancient practices and teachings and philosophies. So he's very, very well educated in uh, uh, conveying this ancient teaching into a contemporary digestible language. So the the book, you know, we just got really into some great um, conversations about different topics that he covered in there. So you'll get to have that coming up in just a moment. But so do know this is a part one of a two-part series because we, we had so much more to cover that we decided we better break this conversation up into two shows. So Without any further delay, I will give you Todd Norian. All right, welcome everybody to The Yoga Voice. We are back here with Todd Norian. I'm so excited to have this conversation with Todd. I've you know, known Todd, I think I met him maybe 2012 or 13, and... Uh, he has been gracious enough to come on the show, and so with that, I will uh, introduce you to Todd Norian. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, so I, I'm going to start this podcast out a little differently. I usually try to um, ask my guests kind of a little bit about their yoga journey, um, kind of life before yoga, what happened to bring them into yoga, and life today, which 
for the listeners that may not be aware, Todd has just um, written a book that's a memoir that answers all those questions <laughs> in in very eloquent detail. So I another so I'd rather like to start today and just kind of check in with with how have you been recently? You know what's what's going on in your world? Well, like everybody else, it's been a crazy adjustment to the new way of life and just dealing with all the challenges and just craziness that's going on in the world. I mean, you know, in the yogic sense, they, they call it the, this is the Kali Yuga, which is age of darkness. And we're moving into the Satya Yuga, which is the age of truth. And it's like, we're not quite there yet. So we have one foot in the Kali Yuga and one leg, one foot stepping over into the Satya Yuga. And it's so challenging right now because there's, there's so much going on. We're faced with so many issues and challenges. And I, I think it's really a great time for spiritual practice because with so much chaos right now and craziness, the only thing we can do is find a sense of calm inside. And it's the whole purpose of yoga. Like when life gets really tough, now's the time to practice yoga. Yeah. So that we go in and connect to our deep inner center and then go back out into the chaos and we act from the calm and the chaos. And then we're not really swept up in the anxiety of everything. We stay really centered inside. So mm -hmm. I've been <laughs> doing the best I can with that. And you know, like all of my workshops cancel. I, I schedule a year, year and a half out in, in advance. And you know, when March came around, I was on getting ready. Actually, it was just a few days. Uh, it was a week before I was traveling to India. I was going to do a personal pilgrimage to India. So, you know, I got all the shots and I got my airline tickets. And I was going with a, a team of other teachers. And it was totally set up. I'd laid out a few thousand dollars already just to like get it set up. And um, <laughs> we had to cancel. Oh. And so at the last minute we canceled, I was still like, no, we should still go. <laughs> but I'm so glad we did because India was a mess uh, around mid-March in the end. I mean, they're still going through a, a, a resurgence. Um, and then... All of my, my workshops, I kept holding out. Oh, no, this one, you know, this great workshop that I love in New Jersey or wherever it is. I'm no, I know they're not going to cancel it. And mm -hmm. sure enough, as the time went on, mm -hmm. you know, three or four weeks before all of my workshops, it just became obvious. No, it's a bad decision to do this workshop. Yeah. So I had to cancel, um, well, postpone a teacher training. And then, you know seeing my whole livelihood just like flush down the toilet. It's like, there it goes. And it's like, okay, now the time, now it's time for yoga. And I reformatted all of my offerings to online. Mm -hmm. And I came up with a, a, a deep morning practice called the Ashaya morning practice series. And I offered it as a 30 day challenge. And people signed up. It was just like the perfect timing because everyone else saw that they really needed to, to plug into their practices again. 
And I offered it just really low price, just say, hey, come practice with me. I'm doing this and, mm-hmm. you know, working out the technical issues. So, you know, I'm now, I'm on my, I'll be doing my fourth uh, challenge in November. And it's like, I've adjusted. And I actually really like teaching from my living room <laughs> and um, teaching online. You know, it's never going to replace the personal contact mm-hmm. when I'm in the presence of my students. Nothing replaces that. But Shakti knows no bounds. And the Shakti, meaning the life force, it, it doesn't mind that it's going through digital. Right. And we still have eye contact and have voice connection and, you know, image connection. Yeah. And it's, I've found that it's, it's still possible to have a really deep, heart-opening experience through Internet, through Zoom. Mm-hmm. So. That's, that's kind of been my experience as well, is, is that, you know, I've always preferred in-person and particularly with the podcast, you know, part of the the impetus of starting it was to have in our sort of disconnected world to have these just real conversations like face to face. And then, then when we had to, you know, go to doing everything online, I, I found that to be true too. There's, there is that internet energetic connection that happens, um, it's different in a sense, but it's still there. And I, I do look forward to in-person events. <laughs> um, yeah. And maybe that's just me, but, but there's a... Um, uh, I guess I miss some of the nuance of uh, like teaching, um, you know, walking through the lobby of the studio before a class you know, or walking to the parking lot after, after a session or a workshop. And there's, there's those little moments that you know, we get a little bit of time often, you know, interacting with students before and after a teaching on Zoom. But there's, you know, there's that in-person thing that, that is missing, that there's little, uh, just those little, um, those kind of like intimate interactions that you have are just spontaneous conversations that I look forward when we get, you know, to a place where those are happening again. But, but I applaud you for all you've done to, you know, I've been looking at your events and your Facebook and Instagram and so you've, you've really organized a powerful online presence and we'll make sure we put all those um, contacts in the podcast notes so people can find out what you're up to and, and what you're doing and all the variety of offerings. So yay, yay for that. Um, so kind of on that note, I, we want to get into the book for sure. Um, but I would be curious to ask, when did the idea of writing the book happen? And just kind of, we'll walk us through a little bit of the kind of the evolutionary process. I know it was multiple years in the works. Um, where did that start and how did, was that experience for you? I've been teaching for a long time and um, my style of teaching is always I share something relatable or personal. 
uh, about a tantric teaching or whatever I'm going to teach in the class. And it really was, um, it became obvious to me that what people really loved about my teaching was they could relate to my stories mm-hmm. and my personal experience. And that's important to me, like how to make the yoga experience relatable and accessible to people so that when they come, they feel an instant heart connection. And, and also that they can take away insights for themselves to better their lives. And I think as yoga teachers, that's one of the skills, certainly, that all yoga teachers want to develop, how to relate more directly to our students. And, you know, we want to be good communicators and be completely relatable. And because my path um, revolves in part around following teachers or gurus and then getting burned by them. (laughs) Um, I've always felt like this need to just take myself off the pedestal right away. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not shy about sharing my struggles. Um, But, you know, as yoga teachers, we certainly, we know, like, we don't want to basically hang our dirty laundry out to dry in a class. But it's always, you know, what struggle did I have that I was able to get through and draw insight from so that I'm constantly uh, making a context for um, everybody's struggle and Mm -hmm. making that okay and then showing how yoga can really, really guide us and help us get through some of the toughest times and uh, as it has for me. So... After doing all these classes over so long, um, it just occurred to me, you know, I'd like to put a book together that just has this storyline of real experiences from my life, but also that teaches the deeper teachings of yoga. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the book has been in the, in the making for several years now. I mean, at least five or six years. And um, it's almost done it's coming out uh this fall so yeah yeah and then part of it dave as you probably know like when we write about something it helps us gain perspective on it and integrate Mm -hmm. it more and um i think that was also part of it like anyone who ever writes a memoir and this is partly a memoir um and it's not selfish but, but it's like Writing about it helped me integrate the experiences and find a way to value them even more. Mm -hmm. So as I wrote my story, they're all real experiences. And it it did something to me inside, something coalesced inside. Mm -hmm. And um, I teach about this a lot. I said, you know, the real sacred scripture is your life. You know, and everyone is, is, is living the scripture of their life. And especially when you're mindful and you bring conscious presence to everything, you start to see um, what a grace it is to be alive and how much life has our back and how what you think was a setback is really a setup for a comeback. That with this kind of perspective that everything in life is for our awakening, we see that even the challenges serve a purpose for us. Right. And to look back on a life 
and see how much I struggled, and especially with the topic of betrayal, that seems to be a theme for me, mm-hmm. that I've grown so much from that, and I've been able to source my own happiness to the extent that I feel like I'm absolutely thriving in my life, e- even though there's all this trauma <laughs> and upset, and you know, everyone goes through their drama in life, and one of the beautiful teachings in Tantra is to learn how to live with drama. Mm-hmm. Learn how to accept drama because drama is the way Shakti expresses herself. <laughs> yes, yes. And I don't mean to use the feminine uh, pronoun for that. But what I mean is that Shakti as the life force itself, as the universal presence of life, must have drama. Mm-hmm. So part of my journey was to stop trying to get rid of my drama. I said, oh, that's just drama. And, you know, there's the phrase, drama doesn't relieve trauma, which I still believe in, you know. But this thing about when you come to a deep acceptance of your drama, I mean, <laughs> just of the things that, we, that happen in life, that there's a real deep integration and acceptance of life itself. That we're no longer trying to, you know, fix our lives, make our lives perfect. It's like really um, the perfectionism part that has kept me small and limited mm-hmm. most of my life is starting to just dissolve. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to make everything perfect. Yeah. And my life is, we could say, you know, I'm perfectly imperfect just as I am. And the source of that is because we live in a perfectly unfinished universe of becoming. Mm -hmm. So if the universe isn't finished or perfect in the way that I think it should be, then why do I hold myself to that standard of perfectionism? Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, it's a roundabout way of saying uh, writing the book helped me integrate and accept my own imperfections as my own divine journey. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, everything that happened to me in the past has brought me to where I am today. And I think to be able to, you know, from, from whatever perspective you're listening to this, you know, podcast from, if you can look back at your life and not let your history get in the way of your destiny. Mm-hmm then you've accomplished uh, a a remarkable level of consciousness. Yeah. Well, it's almost as if when that that drama shows up, it it warrants an inquiry, you know? And that's, I saw, see that in in the book. And so there's a, so why don't we kind of from here, if you will, do a little summary of your life, your, you know, before yoga, what happened, some of your milestones along the way to kind of where, so it's, you know, I, it's a 400 page memoir <laughs> and teaching. So I, I didn't expect you to go into that detail, but for our listeners that may not be familiar with your journey, um, as I read through the book, there was a lot of things I was aware of and things I wasn't, and, and I love the, the detail you went into. So before we go into 
a deeper examination of the book and some of the things you bring out in there, um, it might be helpful to you know, kind of in a, however long you want to spend, recap, recap your life <laughs> and, um, you know, just kind of share, share with our audience um, how, it, how it all became to lead you where you are today. So let's say that. Yeah, way. great. Well, great question. What a leading question that is. <laughs> um, so I'll I'll just kind of go through some of the sort of the, the the broad strokes of what you know really shifted me. And so you know I grew up um, as a musician. Um, I was into classical music, but I always had jazz. Uh, groups that I played. And I really loved jazz, but I felt like I needed to do classical music to get the technique. Mm -hmm. And my instrument was piano. And um, so I went to music school, and um, there I learned just a tremendous amount about discipline. And, and actually music gave me, you know, we do a lot of ear training, like being able to distinguish different sounds and they're called intervals meaning you know if you have two sounds playing two different sounds playing at the same time what is the distance you know according to like the piano keyboard what is what is the distance of the interval between those two sounds and there are some people that have perfect pitch and they can just recognize not only the interval but exactly which note it is um, other people and it's the majority of people have like good relative pitch like I've I don't have perfect pitch, but I have relative pitch. So this whole idea of learning how to listen really influenced my yoga because it helped me become more sensitive to vibration. I mean, what is music? But it's vibration. And, um, and then the discipline of you know, practicing was all great. And, um, but something happened to me in my first or second year in college where I started to lose interest in classical music. Um, I was playing with another avant-garde jazz band. It was just so creative. It's so exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think classical music certainly can be exciting because it's how you interpret these, you know, 300-year-old songs and 200-year-old. But for me, it was like, oh, my God, I just, <clears throat> I don't want to be playing anyone else's music. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it was... <laughs> it was really wonderful. I mean, I was into the whole classical scene, but my heart was more into jazz. And part of the thread of my life has been, how do we follow our heart? Mm -hmm. Because following the heart is, is really where our true gift is. It's where our passion is. But I didn't go into music right away because I thought, oh, I shouldn't be going into music. I need a career where I can actually make a living and all that. But my heart was really into, you know, being an artist. Um, so for whatever reason, um, that kept me out of music. So I decided to go into it and just follow my heart. And a big piece of wisdom happened for me when I visited my grandfather, who was... Um, in the process of dying, he had a, a couple of heart problems and heart surgeries. And I went to visit him after one big surgery and he was able to walk and we were walking and 
It was right before I transferred out of the classical music school into a jazz school, and I was really confused. He let me talk the whole time, and when I was completely done talking with all my confusion, he just looked me straight in the eyes and said, you just need to follow your heart, and everything else will work out in life. Nice. Those were the last words I heard him say. Wow. And um, I didn't really know the impact of, of what that would mean for me. But it turns out that following the heart and, um, you know, listening to a, that deeper voice inside, rather than listening to my mind all the time, that's so influenced by fear and, you know, the core wounded identities from childhood and all that. The mind isn't necessarily clear all the time, but it has a lot of opinions. <laughs> um, <laughs> And this whole idea of, well, you can't really, you, to hear the wisdom of your heart, you have to be still. You, you have to quiet everything down to really listen. Because that, you know, still soft vo voice deep inside, it's, it's not like a voice on a megaphone. It's, this is a very subtle prompting. And I, I think of it as um, the whisper of grace is mm -hmm. always whispering in our ear you know, what to do, what decision to make, but we can't hear it because we're, we're so preoccupied with all the other really loud thoughts inside. Yeah. So that phrase, you just have to follow your heart, everything else will work out, yeah. followed me and I took that right into music school, yeah. right into jazz school. I, I transferred down to University of Miami from University of Michigan to University of Miami. And uh, across the street from the University of Miami was a yoga studio. Yeah. So I always say, you know, if I hadn't gotten that advice from my grandfather to follow my heart, I might not have gone down to do jazz in Miami. Mm -hmm. And I definitely wouldn't have seen, you know, a yoga studio like that. Yeah, you grew up in Michigan, right? I did. Yeah, yeah. Not too much yoga there in the 70s, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so there I am at jazz, and um, I visited a friend one summer um, from high school. He was quite a few years older than me, so I knew him from my high school, but we had other connections, and I'd always looked up, up to him. He was a dancer, and so I was a musician. He was a dancer. We got together. We were at a, his cousin's cottage, actually, doing water skiing and all that. Yeah. And I hadn't seen him in about four years, and I looked at him, and he looked radiant. I mean, he looked like a god. He was so clear, so shiny, and healthy. And I just said, hey, you know, you look really good. What are you doing? And he said, oh, I do yoga. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, tell me more about what that is. So he told me about his experience. He had actually moved into a spiritual community, which was this early form of Kripalu Center when it was an ashram. Okay. So he was there and, the, and he said, why don't you come visit me sometime? And I just, you know, said, okay, but I let it go. I didn't think I ever would. Yeah. And then in the summers, I used to drive up to Rochester, New York to go to Eastman School of Music because they had a fabulous jazz program there in the summer. So on one of my trips, as I was driving back to Miami, it was like a 26-hour drive or whatever, 
I noticed that I drive right past where my friend's uh, you know, yoga community was, which mm -hmm. was in Pennsylvania originally. So I stopped and I called him and he said, yeah, why don't you come? So I was going to spend two days there and I was on my way to doing my master's degree program. They gave me a free ride, a fellowship, to do my master's in jazz composition and uh, performance. And then I would uh, also be on as like a teaching uh, assistant there. So I knew I only had 13 days to get back and start. and I want to get there early. And um, so I knew taking three days wouldn't be a problem. So right before I was going to leave, my friend said, hey, there's a program starting tomorrow, and it's a 10-day course called Quest for the Limitless You. I said, why don't you stick around for that? I said, well, I guess I could. I would just have enough time to drive back and start my fellowship. So there's just the perfect amount of time. Yeah. Um, so I took that course, and that was the end of my searching. Yeah. Um, I called my professors on the last day of the course, and I said, I'm not doing my fellowship. Mm. I decided, you know, I, I joke about it. I say, I went to a 10-day course and stayed for 13 years. <laughs> yes. Um, I was so moved, and I was so opened up by what was going on there. There was yoga. There was, um, they offered health services to the public. They were uh, environmentally conscious. They were, you know, food conscious. It was a spiritual community where everyone was focused on working on themselves and bringing more light onto the planet. And it's very loving. And, and also the uh, founder, who was the guru, I didn't even know what a guru was, was in residence for five of those 10 days. And then every day when he was there, he would give morning darshan which means a teaching mm -hmm. and evening satsangs and i think just being in his presence and being with the community um i just opened up i had a huge opening a huge breakthrough i mean i kind of had a breakdown also mm -hmm. but i called my professors told them i wasn't coming they were completely disappointed i called my parents that was probably a mistake but I was so happy. I said, oh, I found, like, I was just calling them to tell them, like, what a great experience this was. Yeah. And they flipped out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was in the 80s that, oh, my God, you know, you've been brainwashed. You, you're joining a cult. And I said, no. You know, anyway, I couldn't really convince them. Mm -hmm. So one of the learnings about this idea of following your heart is that when you follow your heart, in other words, you're, you decide to do something for yourself that feels completely right to you, even if it's against mainstream, even if it's against uh, family norms, what your parents would want for you, um, that when you follow your heart, you will disappoint others. Mm -hmm. And you know the corollary to that is if you're not regularly disappointing others, who might you be regularly disappointing? Yeah. And part of my awakening was that, oh, God, I've been keeping myself small. I've been disappointing myself by trying to please everybody else, including mm -hmm. my family. 
you know, my dad was a musician, so I was thinking maybe I was going into music partly to please him. Um, but I know I really loved music, so that wasn't really true. But I, I thought, well, maybe there was a little bit of that that could have applied. Mm -hmm. Certainly when I told my parents about the yoga, um, <laughs> they were not approving at all. <laughs> right. So they were disappointed. My professors were disappointed. But I was thriving. And it took several years, but I reached out to my parents again and again. I even invited them to come to see what I was doing. And you know what? They saw that I was really healthy, really happy. I was in love with, with what I was doing. They started to see the value of the service part of the community, how we were helping other people so much. And they came around. My, my mom started doing yoga, and whenever I visit her now, I mean, even still today, um, she waits until I get up. And then she's like right outside my door <laughs> wanting to do yoga with me. <laughs> you know, so we do cat and cow and, you know, coordinating awesome. the breath. It's really sweet. I do a lot of therapeutics with her. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like what my grandfather said. Well, if you just follow your heart, everything else will work out. And it turns out that it actually did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Well, and then that... 13 years kind of ended with a sort of a uh, little drama, right? That, that a, a, how'd you put it? Like a, um, um, feeling let down or betrayed, um, and, and left that community. And then that, and that was, you were like directing the teacher training. You were, you were really well, had been a big part of that community. Was that... Yeah. Yeah, wow. I had. Um, I moved. My course that I took there was in 1982. And then in 1983, we moved the entire community from Pennsylvania up to Massachusetts mm -hmm. in the, their you know, current location. And it was in 94 that allegations against the founder, abuse of power, sexual misconduct. You know, I mean, we just, it's so old these days. You just hear about it all the time. Right. You know, other gurus, you hear about it, um, you know, in uh, traditional religions, sex in the clergy, um, so many um, different areas. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it doesn't hurt any less. It's, it's a big deal. If, it, if some kind of betrayal happens to you, it's always an important time, and it always hurts. And um, so this was a big deal for me because I was so plugged in and, and close to the founder. And you have to consider like the confusion of having these really deep spiritual teachings that I actually lived by and I practiced and they worked. Yeah. And then to find out that your primary teacher, the founder of the entire organization, there were thousands, you know, tens of thousands of followers, was lying, you know, was telling us to practice celibacy, but he, he was not practicing it himself. And just the double standard, you know, the mm -hmm. duplicity. And um, so it, it, it's mostly, you know, I've been reflecting on the word betrayal, and it's like betrayal is, is when someone that you trusted 
breaks your trust because they lied. Right. And either they admit it and they ask for forgiveness or they don't admit it, you know. Um, but it, it creates a lot of confusion. But I trusted you, you know. And, and so it took me a while to open up to realize that, well, you know, the guru is just a human being as well. And he made a series of really bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, just like any of us may make bad decisions at times. So, you know, I was devastated for a while. And I think a, a true betrayal, there's different stages that you go through in terms of the healing of it. You know, it's kind of like the five stages of loss, where the first thing is denial. I refused to believe it at first. Uh-huh. You know? And then you get into, uh, I don't remember what all the five stages of denial, anger. anger. Oh, anger is the second one. Yeah. I was so full of rage, you know. Yeah. And uh, we did a lot of uh, psychological practices there at Kripalu. They called in um, professionals who dealt with um, betrayals like this and mm-hmm. uh, sexual abuse and um, abuse of power because it's quite common and on a community level to help us integrate and go through the feelings. And we definitely went through rage sessions. And then just the feeling of loss and um, finally getting to a place of acceptance. Mm -hmm. So it took me some time. And, you know, I moved out in 96. Well, actually I had gotten married in 94. I got married in February of 94 to someone who also lived at the ashram. We taught together. Um, and then the guru scandal happened in fall of 94. And we decided to live there for a little while, and then we moved out, still affiliated with Kripalu. But yeah, big life changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's not, and it was very much, you were blindsided by it, it sounds like, as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, part of my healing in that whole experience was to try to see my part in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that was, you know, my need to really give power to someone else. If I could just trust someone else, then I wouldn't have to step up to the plate. Um, There was a lot of uh, unworthiness issues that I had to work through myself, you know, um, and codependent issues and, and all that. So I, I saw like I was really vulnerable to that, that kind of um, teacher-student relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it really helped me in a lot of ways. And part of my healing was I had to separate out the teacher from the teaching. And I realized that, no, yoga was true. My practices were true. Because I, I was living the truth of those practices, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think that sense of, of knowing that what you're doing works comes from a sense of conviction um, that comes from your own experience, which is undeniable. Like, someone couldn't tell me that I didn't have those spiritual experiences because I knew I really did. Yeah, yeah. And I saw my life change and get healthier. Um, so I had to separate that out, and I did pretty well. 
I also had a personal completion with the founder. He was able to listen and I felt like we cleared, I was able to clear out as much as I could, mm-hmm. which left me uh, more open to forgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, forgiveness is, al- is, is always for the one who is for forgiving to be able to move on. Right. So um, it was almost like that was a, uh, an intentional practice for me to release the burden of carrying my resentment against him. Yeah. And it, it really helped. Like, well, if I forgive, I just open my heart as much as I can. But it's one thing to open your heart to someone. It's another thing to invite them over for dinner <laughs> and have, like, carry on a relationship. I had no interest in that. Right. Um, and, and then... It's healing. It's very healing practice, right? That, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's really like a question when your heart breaks through loss or betrayal, how does it heal? Mm-hmm. I mean, do we just carry on in life with a cracked heart forever and ever? No, I think if you don't s- seek to heal that wound, you'll start filling it with unhealthy options that, you know, separate you from that pain. You know, it becomes too much to bear. Right. So we, we try to numb ourselves or we get into bad habits of things, you know. But I, I think true health is we have to work through these issues and find our way through the issue to the other side. And there's a lot of self-wisdom and insight that comes yeah. from that. So that experience launched you off into another phase of your life <laughs> where some deeper learning happened, I guess. Um, and that, um, what was maybe different about that experience? Well, let's see, in 97, I joined another community. So it didn't take me long. Three years after the first loss of community, I latched on to another community. Mm-hmm. This was different in the sense that the teachings were related to the, the deep esoteric philosophy of Tantra, mm-hmm. which were very uplifting. And most of my teachings in Ashaya Yoga that I teach now come from this path. It's called non-dual Shaiva Shakta Tantra. Mm-hmm. And that's what I teach now. And that's part of that was what uh, this other community was, was focused on. But I did kind of the same thing. I became a follower. And I traveled all around to study with this teacher, became trained by him, started training others in the method, and then got on all kinds of curriculum committees. And, you know, I guess that's kind of, what I do. I, I go really deep into things and I want to make a difference, you know? So I apply myself like that. And then after 15 years with this teacher, yeah. sexual misconduct, abuse of power, the whole community disbands. Mm. And I found myself again having the same kind of feeling of betrayal. 
And this time, there was a part of me that had already experienced it. It's going, oh, here we go again. <laughs> but I couldn't help myself. You know, there's the denial. <laughs> and I didn't want to leave the community. I said, no, but the teachings are really good. Let's try to resurrect the, the teaching here, yeah. even though the teacher is gone. And that, it was, that was a mess. It was a total mess. And I'm so glad I, I um, pulled out. But I resigned twice. <laughs> yeah. I resigned out of fear. And then I went back, no, I really want to help the organization re reform itself, you know, transform itself and shift. And then after putting in another couple months of work there, I just, um, I, I lost all hope. I said, you know, I, I really don't want to put my energy here. I need to, to shift away from any organization. I need to let go of having any one teacher as my teacher. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of went through an identity crisis. But I had this little voice of awareness that said, you know, you're going to get through this and you can go through denial. Hey, did you have your rage yet? Okay, you got to have your rage. <laughs> and then sadness, you know, mm -hmm. like, so it was like helping me go through these part, these stages of, you know, we could call it grief of loss. Because mm -hmm. when you lose a teacher, when you lose a community, it's, it's a, this is a tough, a tough blow. You know? Yeah questioning the teachings and questioning myself, the whole thing. Well, I landed full circle in myself, yeah. which was, you know, I'm not going to let this happen again. You know, three strikes and you're out. You know, it was <laughs> twice that happened, and I learned a lot about myself each time, but I still hadn't fully stepped in my own gift, my own capacity to share insights and create a community that I feel really proud of. It's not about me as, you know, the, the, the lead person. It's a community of inter, interdependence. We're all working together and there's no like, it's not a guru-disciple type relationship no anymore. cult of personality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, if it wasn't for the two betrayals that I had, I probably wouldn't have come to the decision to start my own uh, yoga style, yoga process, you know, yoga for heart followers mm -hmm. that I call Ashaya yoga. And Ashaya means abode of the heart. Yeah. And it is learning how to come back to our center, how, com how to come back to a place inside that integrates not just the joy and the light of spiritual living, but the drama, the shadow, you know, the full spectrum of who we are. So I really, really brought in to be authentic on your spiritual path. You must acknowledge both suffering and joy, both shadow and light, and, and learn from it. So that was the basis of, of the method and with all the alignment cues. And um, I related the Ashaya. There's four essentials in Ashaya yoga, like four main principles. But they relate to the five elements, earth, water, fire, air, and sky. Yeah. And for me, getting back to nature and understanding how the elements are alive inside of us and how we can balance them and expand them more mm -hmm. became um, really 
a real inspiration for me. Yeah. Well, and I, and I met you, right, kind of at, not too long after you left that second community, and you were like the foundation of Ashaya Yoga was, you were in that sort of identity crisis, but in that formulating and and uh, d- delivering teachings, you were a part of a you know, 300-hour tr- teacher training I was in, and and that was, you know, I uh, I knew there was deep wisdom and teaching in what you brought to the table, and I also appreciated the, you know, the the, the kind of looseness that you carried the weight of your, of life, you know, where it was that old like where like life like a loose garment thing. You're like, you know, this first guru turned out you know, being dishonest. And I went and did it again. It's like, I'm not going to, I've learned, I, I'm i going on my own. This, you know, but you had a, a lightness to it. It wasn't like I'm a victim. I'm, it wasn't a heavy, a heavy, um, yeah, you'd gone through a lot of the healing, but you were still like in that process. And, and so I was excited to see all the things you've, you know, that the road you've taken and all the things you've done, with Ashaya Yoga and and now and now the book, which um, I, we talked a little bit earlier, you know, uh, Todd had sent me the the digital file right as I was leaving town to be offline for a week camping, and so I've, I've been speed reading this like 400 page document <laughs> this last few days, and and um, I'm going to go back and and take a a nice slow dive into it. Um, but there are a few, a few things I'd like to have you kind of dig, dig into a little bit, if that's okay. And, and first of all, I I love the way the the, uh, voice that you wrote it in. I mean, just like the, just to me, it, it, reading it was very fluid. It, It made it kind of easy to, to fly through it, but there was a lot of places where I'm like, I'm not like a trained speed reader. So I'm like, oh, I, I have to, you know, take this little more piecemeal and, and absorb it. But, um, but I really like the flavor of the writing. And I also love that, like you had um, the quotes, you know, that you start some of the chapters out with were some of my, some of my favorite writers and poets and like Rilke. I'm like, oh, he, okay, this is going to be a good book. He's, he's quoting Rilke here. And then, and then, of course, Brene Brown and, and, and a lot of the yogic texts and the Upanishads and then um, Joseph Dispenza shows up in there. I mean, there's just like a, 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 a lot of little um, gems from other people that pave the path to the gems of Todd Norian that show up in the book. And um, I would like to, is it okay if I read a couple little sections? Sure. Would that be kind of weird having me read your book to you? <laughs> no, it's, uh, I'm open to it, whatever. So um, r- really early on in the book, um, I thought this was interesting. You you um, used a quote by Brene Brown, and then I'll read a, a quote of, of your writing. But this is the one about shame where she says, shame is the intensely painful feeling of or experience of believing that you are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. We are hardwired for love and belonging, 
hardwired for connection, is what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. The fear is we are unworthy of love and belonging. Wherever love and belonging are absent, there is suffering. And then I like something that you, you, um, you, you kind of dissected that a bit. And then I love this paragraph that you wrote. Yoga is the practice of peeling away the layers of shame that veil the true capacity of your heart to shine. Only when you fully embrace your shadow, um, comprised of your imperfections, will your light be authentic. This is the work. This is the true work. The tantrika, the one who practices tantra, wants to engage with life because only through engaging with life in responsible ways can you truly experience your freedom. The more you duck, dodge, and deny facing your life and your relationships, the less free you are. Freedom is found only when you choose to walk through the fires of your life and not avoid the problems, your problems, when faced square on, are what shifts your consciousness and awakens you to higher octaves of existence. I like to say that, quote, you have to go through it in order to get to it. You have to go through it in order to get to it. And that was um, so well, I, I, and it goes on and on. But that paragraph, I think, speaks, it seemed like there was a, th- a healing thread throughout the book. And the idea of, of connection and being authentic. And uh, you talked about perfectionism earlier and that perfectionist nature. And I, I believe it's Brene Brown talks about like when, when uh, perfectionism is driving the bus, shame is, in the, co- shame is the co-pilot. And I, and I really kind of saw that in the, that healing of the um, shame and how that, that kind of plays in on the, and you know, this, you know, you really got deep into some of those concepts of healing, which I, um, you know, I thought that was pretty powerful and, and all, you know, through the book and through the way you describe the teachings of Tantra, um, it just seemed like it's like very, very, very powerful. Um, do you want to dive into that, that side of healing a little? Yeah, what, what's occurring to me now is we already have everything we need inside of us. And that is a pretty big concept to chew on and to digest. And if that's true, then the entire practice of yoga is peeling off what's in the way of that. In other words, we've put so many veils of consciousness in front of the light that that light is now, you know, opaque. And as you meditate, as you practice, the opaqueness turns to translucency. A little bit of light gets through. 
yeah. And as you practice more, ultimately, we want that translucency veil to become so thin that it becomes transparent, where you're reflecting the light of the divine that's already there permanently. It's in our DNA, you know. You have the DNA of the divine. Mm -hmm. And then for us as yogis, especially in Tantra yogi, not only do we want the transparency there, but we want to become that light. Mm -hmm. You think of our own individual nature and universal nature. The individual nature is a limited form of the universal. Think of the, the term non-dual, which is part of the name of the philosophy, means that there's one spirit. There's only one energy. When we look up at the sky, there's the one energy in its most vast free form. It's unbounded. And then we look on earth and we look at ourselves or we look in the mirror, we look at a frog or <laughs> uh, look at a rock and say, here's that one vast energy in its limited form as a rock, in its limited form as a human being. And when sky contracts itself, freezes itself, becomes petrified as earth, as material, nothing of the vastness is ever lost. In other words, in the non-dual tradition, that vast energy of what we call the absolute is embodied as the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's so many metaphors. You know, the entire oak tree is contained in the acorn, in the seed. That seed has the imprint, has the DNA of the entire fullness of that tree. Mm-hmm. Will that seed sprout? It's up to you. Mm-hmm. You have to give it the right environment. And many of the seeds don't sprout because it's bitter cold winter and uh, the, the seed gets, becomes breakfast for a squirrel. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So in that way, like we arrive really from, from freedom, through freedom, into freedom. We could say mm-hmm. from love, through love, into love. Yeah. And we have that potential to actually live a life of meaning, of fulfillment, of freedom, of of basically to bring forth the gifts that we've all been given. Mm-hmm. And when that gift is coming forward, there's almost an instantaneous fulfillment, instantaneous happiness. And we want to seek this, you know, and I always say, no, you seek that through following your heart so that you can thrive in every aspect of your life. And touch once again the vastness from which you came. That's already there, but it's behind opaque, translucency, transparency even, Mm -hmm. until we actually become that and own that and live from that. And I think spiritual practice, daily practice, is the best way Mm -hmm. to get there. I'm not sure it's the only way. Yeah. But um, 
It's, it's what I've found to keep me more and more attuned to the vastness of the sky inside of my own limited presence. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, so, that's so beautifully said. And, and that, you know, you are the shining light. And I, I think something that came to my mind, um, and I know we're starting to run a little short on time. <laughs> I, I, like, I think this needs to be a part one, part two to conversation. <laughs> but um, so at the be- in the beginning of your book, you talked about being a small child, maybe five, or, you know, pretty young, having this really dark nightmare, just uh, night terrors or just, but it was a dream that was, was very, very dark. And then, and you talked about your father, you know, your parents came in your room and slapped you to wake you up and bring you back to reality, right? So I think that that's interesting that that, that vivid imagery of that experience stuck with you. And then as I read further on in the book, when you're, you're deciding to leave school and you did this 10-day retreat and you had that, that opening experience on the, the hill behind the ashram, which was an embodiment of light. I mean, it was a connectiveness, but it was, to me, that was speaking like you were in, the, in just embodying light and in an overwhelming sense and that it was, in a way, a dreamlike experience that you were caught up in that you know, led to you needing to take a little break, but then your father and mother came and, you're, and you were having some breathing things going on and he slapped you <laughs> to kind of bring you back into that moment, right? Like, wake up. And, uh, and it's, so I, I, I saw those two very different experiences. One was very about darkness and one was very much about light, the way I interpreted it. And i just curious, like... Um, your relationship with your father, do you ever talk to him about those experiences in depth? And do you see the polarity of, of what I'm trying to say there? Yeah. Um, I hadn't really put those two experiences together in that context before. So that's very beautiful, Dave, yeah. that you, you read that <clears throat> into what I wrote. And um, I did talk about that with my dad. Um, he died about a year, year and a half ago. Was it a year and a half? Almost. He died about less than a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but my relationship with my dad was really, really good. I mean, we, I worked on it. And um, we got to know each other really well. We did talk about that experience. It was hard for him. Um, you know, and I, I think just for your listeners, um, they don't know, but that, that time that I was, you know, calling my professors to cancel my fellowship right at the end of this incredible 10-day retreat, um, I had such an in-depth spiritual experience that it became a spiritual awakening and it also was a spiritual emergency um, where I lost my ability to relate on this level and I was actually, the, the ashram called my parents who were going through divorce in California, and this was in Pennsylvania, they had to, you know, fly in to get me um, because I, I had a breakdown. And um, luckily I had family in Philadelphia, so they came to pick me up and I went right into the Pennsylvania 
mental institution, the state hospital there. Um, no one really knew what was wrong with me, but they couldn't admit me because they didn't have any beds, so I had to stay overnight in a hotel. And I stayed with my dad. <laughs> and what was going on for me, I mean, on one level, yeah, it was a psychotic break, but on another level, I was having these spontaneous kriyas. If you read about kriyas in yogic texts, they're spontaneous um, expansions of spirit inside that are helping to purify the body, mind, and heart um, to clear out what's no longer needed. So I had like intense fear. It was like I was living inside of a nightmare. And I was conscious, but this energy was so strong it had taken over my body. So different things happen. Spontaneous movement can happen. In fact, that's, um, some people say that that's really the source of where yoga asana came from, is when these yogis um, had such in-depth spiritual experience that it was the shakti in them that moved their body into these shapes to purify and release blockages mm. and all that. And then it came to be codified as, as asana and all that. Um, yeah. But pranayama, spontaneous kriyas of pranayama, where I couldn't control my breath. So the moment that my dad slapped me in the hotel room was when this kriya was going on, uh -huh. and I couldn't stop exhaling. Uh -huh. And I became hysterical, I was crying. My dad had no idea what was going on with me. He just saw that I couldn't get my breath. And I think he was really afraid for, for my life. And so, boom, he, <laughs> he sl slapped. I don't think it was very hard, but it was certainly startling. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't in my right mind. I was, re I was way out there somewhere going through all these very intense internal purification processes that were outside of my control. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know if that slap helped. It probably did. Um, but we made it through the night. I'm not sure I slept a wink. And then the next morning they had a bed for me and I went in. Oh my God, it took three or four of these huge, uh, I don't know what they were. They weren't like security people, but like they were orderlies the or something. Yeah. They, they were the workers there at yeah. the psych ward. Um, they were strong. Oh my God. But it took them all to hold me down because I was going through like my rage rage part that was also spontaneous. I still wasn't aware that I was even doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, I give more detail in the book, but they, yeah. they put me in a sort of a seclusion room and I just really the spontaneous, more breathing, spontaneous mantras were coming out. And I just hung out in that room for probably a day or more, letting go of whatever that was. And um, I mentioned in the book, but I, the program was 10 days, and I was in the hospital for exactly 10 days. Yeah. I was recuperating, and after 10 days, I was, I mean, I won't say back to normal, but I was on this plane again and was relatable, had all of my senses, um, but I was a completely changed person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like you, you, you had a release as well as an opening, and it did it feel like a it feel like a purification. I, I kind of gathered from coming out on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like going through the dark night of the soul, but 
for real. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I feel grateful to my dad and grateful to my parents who loved me enough that they would take it seriously. They flew all the way across country. They were so concerned. My, my, it was my mom's sister and her husband um, in Philadelphia who came to get me. I really felt like there was so much love for me. Like people came to hold the boundary for me. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the doctors and just the whole experience um, helped me to move through that with as little uh, harm as possible. Yeah, yeah. And I came out the other side, and my, you know, I had done a vegetarian diet first time ever in my life. I had lost probably 20 pounds, and I'm thin already. And um, I remember recouping at my aunt's house, and she just made like chicken soup like every day <laughs> <laughs> and chicken and all this, like grounding me through my diet to actually uh, put weight on. And so, yeah. and it was af after that time that I still decided I went back to Miami and um, I wanted to get back to Kripalu. So, the first thing I wanted to do is go back. Mm -hmm. But they wouldn't allow it. I was on the awareness list. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's a liability. Don't let him come back. Yeah. So through a, a series of tries and different experiences, they finally allowed me to come back as a test case for a weekend. <laughs> and I did fine. Then I went back for a week. Didn't have any psychological problems. And then um, they let me join their, it was like a karma yoga program. Mm -hmm. for a month and I just packed up my car and drove in and I knew I was going to be able to stay after a month so I did yeah well what I think is interesting about it and then you stayed and you never had any other episodes like it was like a, a, a catharsis of sorts and then you've gone on to teach for decades what over 30 years thousands and thousands of students all over the world and um, so that, I don't want to say lesson, but that experience and what you, you walked, walked through it, you know, talk about walking through the fire. <laughs> I mean, was able, you were able to transform that into to who you've become today and a and, uh, little bit, you know, your journey has been, it seems to be like on this progressive path that... Um, that that was in a sense a catalyst and um you know and i think the the nightmares as a small child and that darkness was a was a you know a catalyst for childhood right and walking through some of those experiences you shared in the uh in the book and the uh detailed introduction but so i mean i'm just looking at our time um <laughs> and i want to respect your time are we okay for a little bit, or do we need to get, wrap it up? I could go for a few more minutes. That's fine. Okay, okay. Um, so, the, uh, gosh, there's so many little notes I made that uh, I'm not going to have time to get into, but uh, the, I felt like um, we'll, we'll save serrated edge to the later time. <laughs> um that's, that's part two. That's part two. 
um, I, will, I think maybe we'll kind of try to wrap it up with um, uh, a little bit about Tantra in, in particular. I'll just real quickly read this quote on um, Hello Tantra. Um, Why did you come here? Why did you receive this body? This is not a question that can be casually, superficially, or only intellectually answered. It is one of the great mysteries of existence. In fact, it is only in the fulfillment of our most authentic and highest sadhanas or spiritual journey that we individually, each of us, discern and see the sacred, the secret purpose, the truest, profound meaning and value of our individual existence. The Shaiva Tantra tradition urges us to understand what we are, that we are important. There is something of great value, depth, purpose, and transcendent importance going on. And that, that was something you quoted from um, Paul Mueller Ortega. And then you go on to just unpack that in such a beautiful way in that chapter 16. Um, and like to me, that just felt like a really beautiful embodiment of, of Tantra that in particular, um, how's that kind of showing up in Ashaya yoga? And we'll kind of try to wrap it up there. Well, um, I think it really describes the process by which we find joy. Mm-hmm. That you can't find joy only through the intellect or the mind. Um, you can't find it only through the heart, because we have to learn how to deal with this mind, or only through the body, that it's really the combination, the interweaving of body, mind, and heart, so that all parts of us are integrated, uh, experienced, felt, accepted, and made equally important, you know. Um, and that's part of what a shy is, is that it's a, a path to harmonize body, mind, and heart with, your, with the deepest desire like of your soul. To really know yourself is to know both your gifts and your shortcomings. To be able to pay attention to your blind spots and recognize that you, we're all humble, humble seekers, you know. And um, the whole idea of being perfectly imperfect as we are now is the prerequisite to open your heart. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're stuck in arrogance or we're stuck in this perfectionistic pathway, which is what secures unworthiness. You know, um, the perfectionist can never achieve perfection because there's always more that one has to do to be perfect. And so being a perfectionist can only give you a sense of unworthiness, mm-hmm. that you're incomplete. And that takes you into the root of shame, which, like you were saying, if perfectionist is driving the car, shame, <laughs> shame is in the passenger seat or in the back seat, co-pilot. Yeah. Um, so... I think it's really discovering 
the beauty of life, the being in touch with the miracle that life is, to not take anything for granted. Mm-hmm. And one thing that does it for me is just knowing how short life is. That this journey is, you know, 60, 70, 80, maybe 90 years if you're lucky. Um, and then on this level, it's done. And what are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our life? And there's a certain um, experience. It's called the Ananda Tandava. I'm not sure this is in the book. I think it is in the book. You you mentioned, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Ananda Tandava, which means the dance of bliss. Like the yogis, the tantric yogis are describing life as the Ananda Tandava, Mm -hmm. the dance of bliss. And Tandava means being holy in the state of your state. Yeah, almost like being possessed in the state of whatever it is that you're experiencing, to become absorbed, focused, concentrated on the experience you're having. And that the tantrika yogi wants wildness without savagery, fury without anger, and urgency without anxiety. And that if you happen to experience savagery, angry, anger, and anxiety, that that's Tandava too. Mm -hmm. That this idea of Tantra is that it encompasses everything. Mm -hmm. And it says you're free to choose. You know, where, you know, what, what value is it? The Tantra asks three questions. What is your deepest, most desire? Then we have to discern, like, what's your deepest desire? That's of the heart. What value is it to you? That's of the head. We have to discern. Because not everything is as valuable as everything else. You could desire a lot of things, but what, what value is that desire for you? And then what are you prepared to do about it? Mm-hmm. Which is to act through the body. So we have heart, we have head, we have body. And that's really, that's the ashaya, that's the abode of the heart, is to... Yeah. You know, savor life, experience life. You know, life is the virtuosity of being yourself. Virtuoso, like a master musician. You know, my, one of my earlier teachers said, you know, the yogi wants to be a musician of life. To really master the experience of what it means mm-hmm. to be human. Yeah. And... Um, so that's, that's what a shy is, and it's <laughs> a beautiful path. Yeah. I've got a lot of courses online that are sort of bringing this out. I have one that I'm formulating now. I mean, the current one that's coming up is called the Soma Series, which is a therapeutic mm-hmm. 10-day course. But the one that's coming that I'm really excited is Journey to Unbreakable Wholeness. Ah. And... I haven't really decided exactly how it's going to function, but betrayal is, you know, getting through betrayal. But I think the real focus there is how do you turn your grief into gratitude? Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we move through our challenges and come back to our heart where we recognize that we're already whole and complete? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't want to be stuck here having the experience of limitation. Right. 
I want to have the experience of the sky, this vastness, from the limited perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. so. Well, that, um, there's, there's plenty of here for another talk, for sure. <laughs> and I was, I, you know, particularly the serrated edge opens up that, that um, brokenness and unbrokenness. And, that's, and I think like we can have a whole conversation around that. So, um, but what, what a beautiful um, gift you have for sharing and articulating some, you know, very deep concepts that are timeless and, um, and bringing these ancient philosophies into very contemporary digestible language. And the book is, you know, uh, just a, a beautiful work of weaving your story with the Tantra principles and Ashaya yoga. And, and it, it all, it all just um, weaves together very nicely. And I'm, I'm looking forward to taking a deeper, deeper look into it. And, now, when can our listeners expect the book to be available? Do we, is there a published date or where, where are you at with that? Yeah, well, I'm self-publishing, so it's, it's kind of up to me. A little fluid, okay. <laughs> I have a pre-order page up already on my website, and it shows the cover of the book and um, uh, some excerpts. And um, I'm hoping to get it this fall, like before the fall is over. So mm. my goal is to, you know, sometime, I'm just going to guess sometime in October, November, it'll be coming out. So there's um, a couple things that have to happen. First, uh, a major tectonic plate has to shift into place in my life before the book can come out. And um, that's partly what I'm waiting for. Mm. But I'm also very aware of the work of self-publishing. Like if you're writing a book, you're not sure to get a publisher or to self-publish, and you just want to do self-publishing, be ready for it. <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I don't have a work that's published, so I don't know all that publishers do, but I think they, they do a lot of the sort of the finishing part of the book. They make a lot of the decisions. Of course, they do the editing and so that's that's where the book's at now. It's completely written, and it's being uh, polished. So I have like another editing process to go through, and then I'm pretty much ready, waiting for this tectonic plate to fall into place, and then boom, it'll be out. Awesome. Well, so everyone out there listening, be sure to you know check out. Uh, at ashayayoga.com get on the pre-order page you won't regret it i mean this is it's just a um very nicely written and the the uh the breadth of teaching is is pretty broad so that's it's a very uh something i think it can be studied not just read through you know so there's a there's a lot there and then check out some of the offerings that that todd's Um, We'll post all this in the podcast notes. He has a lot going on. He's a very busy guy. Um, So I look forward to uh, talking with you again, Todd. And we'll have to get something else on the books here to do a a part two. (laughs) I would enjoy that very much. It's been really wonderful speaking with you, Dave.
Yes. Well, you as well. And thank you so much for your time. And um, until next time, everyone, we'll uh, be well and stay healthy and safe and look forward to you tuning in again. Thank you for listening to The Yoga Voice, brought to you by City Yoga School of Yoga and Health, where we are committed to exploring how yoga inspires and transforms. Find out more at www.cityyoga.biz. That's C-I-T-Y-O-G-A dot biz. Special thanks to our producer, Brian Sims, for his audio expertise.